Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People this week, it's the most wonderful time of the year. I don't want an election. You don't want Who will win the Christmas election? The nurse wins, the pensioner wins, the student wins, the office worker wins, the engineer wins. We all win! And will it really be all about Brexit? Because this general election is one where the future of our country for generations is at stake. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week as ever is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hi, Rachel Wearmouth is also with us. Hello. And we're glad to welcome back Tory election guru, Lord Robert Haywood. Hi. Hi Robert. So Boris Johnson has broken his pledge to leave the EU do or die by October 31st. He responded by calling for a Christmas election, which a reluctant Labour Party eventually backed after days of wrangling. Critics have said Johnson could have got his Brexit deal through before calling a snap poll, but let's listen to Transport Secretary Grant Shapps insisting it was impossible. Well, unless you want us to start breaking the law that Parliament sets, and you know, it's just it, it, just nothing that you can do when Parliament is so dithering and delaying that it can't work out what it... I mean, it voted for this deal and then failed to vote for a programme motion. That's a technical thing which allows you to actually pass the legislation in a reasonable amount of time. Um, so it just became got to the point where it was impossible. And that's why we end up with an election that no-one really wanted, but we have to have, so we can sort this thing out and get Brexit done once and for all. There's something rather... Bizarre. Paul, we've not heard a huge amount of noise about Johnson breaking his pledge. How significant do you think it's going to be in the campaign? Well, that all hinges on, I think, um, what the Brexit Party's tactics are going to be and how many candidates they they field, because they're the main beneficiaries, obviously, from that broken pledge. Um, I'm not. I mean, Labour will obviously uh, taunt the, Boris Johnson about it. I mean, we've already seen that. Jeremy Corbyn started the day with a tweet that actually tweaked his tail on it. So, the, there's the the problem though is that actually. Labour doesn't want this to be a Brexit election. It wants it to be obviously on other things. The Brexit Party wants to make it very much about Brexit or a non-delivered Brexit. And it's been a big sort of strategic call, I think, by Dominic Cummings and the Vote Leave crew around uh, um, Johnson to say, actually, we can campaign without having delivered Brexit. And it's a massive risk. It's a huge risk because, as I think we've discussed before, I personally think if they delivered Brexit, they would have killed the Brexit party stone dead. They haven't. They've made a decision, and it is a decision, despite what Grant Shapp says. It's a clear decision that to go ahead without having done it. Because there was a good piece by UK and Changing Europe this week, Alan Wager, who did a nice analysis showing that actually that deal had a very good chance of going through. A lot of Tory MPs, as you know, have talked about that. Um, so having made that strategic decision, you know, Johnson's got to take the risks that come with it, and it is a big risk. Um, Robert, I've been speaking to loads of Tory MPs this week who say a, a pre-Brexit election is fraught with danger. Are they right? Any election is fraught with danger, but this is probably more so than most. It's interesting that I was chatting to 
um, James Johnson, who was Theresa May's uh, sophologist, and he and I disagreed on whether it was better to go before Christmas or after a deal. Um, and that's amongst close Tory friends. So on a wider audience with any uh, variation of perspectives, there's no question. Uh, there are those who think that it's a big risk and I fall into that category. Um, there are others who think that other dates would have been even bigger risk. And there's a good point in mentioning James Johnson because I think he's changed his mind. He had been a real stickler for the fact that he looked at the data, what happened after March 29th and May um, postponing Brexit. And he was the one, quite rightly, saying, well, the data at the time showed there wasn't much of a fall off in support. It was the one that the April delay to October that really cost them. And yet recent polling has shown actually what Rob's just said, that actually... It's much quicker the fall off in support now, much, much quicker. They're picking up a lot of anger amongst Leave voters, not again. And, it, and I think that was a real problem for number 10 because they had assumed, look, we could ride this out. I mean, lots of us do assume they could still ride it out. Johnson could get away with it. But what's, what Farage is brilliant at is picking up on that sense of betrayal and always was going to. And what's really interesting is how quickly that betrayal will be felt. I actually think that he can live with it. Um, and the fact that at the moment it hasn't got that much uh, uh, traction. It's being mentioned, but I, I don't see it. Because Boris Johnson is perceived as Mr Brexit, uh, if he says to the uh, public, look, folks, it's Parliament, it's a problem, uh, I can do it. I think there will be some problems, but I, in the overall run of an election, and we've got to look at this in those terms through to December the 12th, will when people start going to the postal votes or to uh, the actual polling stations in early December, will they think October 31st? No, there'll be other factors. Um, Rachel, the timing of the election suits some of the other parties as well, doesn't it? Um, well, I was, was going to say, I think I actually think a pre-Brexit election for Boris Johnson really suits him because he can campaign for his deal, a deal that he's already got. Um, it can also make this big pitch that he's the centre ground politician who's managed to negotiate something that, that Labour MPs can back as well. So he can look like he's this leader who brings people together. Um, in terms of how Brexit would work for Jeremy Corbyn, I think it's a, a bit of a disaster for him because he'd have such a complicated policy of we'll renegotiate a Labour Brexit deal and give you one choice versus... Um, versus Remain, Jeremy Corbyn won't say which way he'll campaign himself. Um, so that just looks like a long period of more and more Brexit for people, which I think is probably the last thing they want to think about facing in 2020, just before Christmas. So, yeah, I think it, it, it very much favours Boris Johnson. It's interesting, though. It's, it's big, it comes down to trust and do, do leave voters think, actually, Boris Johnson, God, you're just like all the others. You know, that's the big question. Is he just like all and, the others? And is the thing that with Leave voters, the date has become really, really kind of um, symbolic yeah. for people, even though it was almost a made-up Brexit date. But that's really been a huge issue for Leave yeah, voters. Yeah, and it, obviously it was Theresa May's massive blunder setting that date on March 29th in the first place. Ken Clark and others said, you're foolish, and so did Grieve even. So why are you writing this into the face of a bill? And, and it was all done for a Sunday Telegraph quick headline, as we all know. It. And um, and just because to show, pandering to the media can lead to real problems. Yeah. But I think that, yeah. Politicians pandering to the media? <laughs> Never. <laughs> and I think that, that a lot of Leave voters will just think, he's all like all the rest of them. He, he promised us something and he didn't deliver it. And, and the, the thing is, we're in October now. It will it will go through in November, and in, by December, 
I actually think, so I slightly disagree with Rob, I think by December, instead of forgetting about October, people might think, God, we're still not out. This is two months on from October. Um, I mean, that, there's a danger of that. And if anyone's going to exploit it, it will be Farage. We'll find out. It, it may well be that actually um, Boris can, you know, get away with it, so to speak. Right, Robert, cards on the table. Where do you see the Tories picking up seats? And um, is a majority possible for Boris Johnson? If the vote were tomorrow, the Tories would not have a majority. They would be losing seats in the southeast and in Scotland and possibly in London as well, although they're down to a fairly small number in London anyway. Uh, they will lose less than most people are saying, or fewer, I'm not quite sure which is the correct grammar, uh, in the south southwest. Uh, southwest demographically is leave voters and they're the older population who are unlikely or less likely to change their voting habits. Uh, and, and in a Brexit election, they'll stick with the Tories in a way that they may not in the southeast. So the Tories are going to lose seats there. At the moment, I can't see them picking up the seats in Wales, in the North Midlands and the North uh, to the numbers to compensate for those that they're going to lose. What I do think, however, is that if Boris Johnson has a good campaign, whether it's on Brexit or whether it's One Nation, and I think it'll be a combination of both, there is a possibility actually that he'll have a clear majority what I don't think, you see some people saying, oh, we'll have a majority of 10 or 20. Actually, they're just hedging their bets. As far as I'm concerned, it'll either be no majority, which is where I am at the moment, or a really clear majority of 30 plus, because under a good election campaign, he'll lose fewer than I currently expect in places like the South East, South West and Scotland, and he'll pick up more in Wales, the Midlands and the North. Interesting. And do you think the Tories have a problem with all these moderate senior MPs leaving at this election? Is, is the party becoming a sect? Uh, it, there is a problem. There's no question about it. And it's whether the Liberal Democrats in particular, uh, who will target the uh, middle class, entrepreneurial, um, home counties, commuters very hard. And with them, and particularly the, the female voters, the wives uh, and the other um, business, business women, they will actually be targeted by the Lib Dems and whether they can get traction on the arguments of a sect uh, really will decide quite a few seats in the South East. It's interesting that. Do you think people actually know, know people like Nicky Morgan are? And do they think they notice when they leave? I don't know. I mean, Rob's better on this than I am, but in, in terms of the personal vote an MP has, it's often over overstated and it's often just the party. Um, what do you think, Rob? It's I mean, overstated as individuals. But if you have a group of people who are all sending the same message, um, whether they're fighting the election or not, there's a perception that a group of moderates have actually left Parliament or have been forced out, then that is a message that gets carried uh, in the public mind. And I'm sure we will see it in some form or another in Lib Dem literature, Lib Dem broadcasts, uh, social media or the like. Do you what? think... Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, is, is there no residual affection for Boris Johnson in London when he was mayor? Uh, there is some. But uh, it tapered off. I, I looked at uh, the impact of his first victory as against his second victory and how that compared with opinion polls and local elections. And it was markedly diminished the second time. There is no question, if you talk to Tory MPs, 
and Tory candidates uh, across the country in certain areas outside London and the South East. And they're telling me that he is getting an incredible response. Um, I was talking to a guy who's likely to be a Tory candidate on the M62 corridor, the classic leave territory from Liverpool to Hull, the Wakefields, the Warringtons, the Wiggins, the Barnsleys. The Do- I was talking to him this morning. This is absolutely fantastic out there canvassing at the moment for the Tory body. Um, and he'd gone in. Uh, he's very much a working class guy himself. And he was in a working men's club last night. And given your accent, you'll recognise the sort of people we're talking about. And he, he as the recognised local Tory, was getting a phenomenal response uh, yesterday. Now, if you talk to the to vote to MPs in the southeast, very different state of affairs. I would I would say just anecdotally, I've noticed that the Conservatives are more popular in the northeast. That um, you know, I go back less regularly than I than I used to, um, and it's it's noticeable. Yeah, how much more popular the Conservatives are. And ironically, Theresa May kind of laid the foundation for for any Boris Johnson election victory built on the M62 corridor as well didn't she because she cut a lot of majorities without winning the seats after spending like the whole of 2017 in Yorkshire and she, there is an element of it but you it's a broader matter um the coal minings went to coal mines went two generations ago shipbuilding went three generations ago now generally so what you've actually got uh, are people working in Amazon and uh, and all sorts of other distribution centres. So there's no longer the strong labour community that there was that was built in the shipyards and the coal mines and the steelworks. And say they're now blue, they're now white collar workers or possibly blue collar workers, but working in massive warehouses, um, doing effectively what we probably 30 or 40 years ago would have described as clerical white collar work. And they're voting. The family allegiances have changed dramatically, which is why the Tories now have all this corridor of seats up through Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire alongside the M62. You know, um, you just, they wouldn't have had them and 20 well, or 30 years, except in a wave election, but not in one where you've got a hung parliament. I mean, one of the reasons we're in the hung parliament we're in now is because Labour gained seats, a few seats last time from the Tories that they didn't really expect to. Absolutely. Now, they're tight majorities, a lot of those. Where, how do you think they're going to go, Rob, when it comes to the, this sudden new revival of the Lib Dems as, as the repository of, of Labour Remain votes. Is, is that, I mean, Labour are really, really worried that that will split their vote and and that the Tories don't even have to gain an extra vote to win those seats. They just seem to see the opposition split. There is no such thing as a complete group of seats. Every seat is different in its own form. Um, and if you take the seats that the Labour Party gained last time, They do, as you say, many of them are on very small majorities. Um, But they are in different parts of the country. There are a number, the ones that the Tories lost in Wales and places like High Peak, Warrington South. Lincoln. um, I was thinking less so of Lincoln, but Weaver Vale, etc. Those are in leave heartlands. And if there is to be a solely of Brexit election, which I don't think, but they are in the sort of territory where a lot of people will be influenced in that form. But there is one other group of seats which partly were Labour gains at the last election. And I'm thinking here of Reading West, Portsmouth South, Canterbury, which are university seats. And Labour hold the overwhelming majority of university seats. Ironically, Boris represents one of only four 
that our Tory held. And you can do that as the quiz at the end if you want. Name the other three. <laughs> the quiz is already written. <laughs> well, in which case, I'll identify them. It's the University of Essex, Surrey, and Loughborough. They're the only four Tory-held seats with big universities. And Nicky Morgan in Loughborough is just quit. Just retiring. But um, Labour hold most of those seats. Now, some of them they took off the Tories, but they are ones that the Lib Dems will be hammering at. Cardiff Central, Manchester Withington, Leeds Northwest, Sheffield Hallam. Some of them are seats they've held before, um, but a number of them they haven't. And the Labour Party will be absolutely hammering, uh, the Lib Dems will be hammering at those. And I think the, the Labour Party are in difficulty in some like Reading East and Canterbury, where the, they, they lost last, the Tories lost last time. But actually, those voters will go Lib Dem this time. Well, speaking of Labour, Jeremy Corbyn has launched Labour's campaign this morning with an attack on the super-rich in an attempt to recapture the energy and spirit of his 2017 insurgency. The Labour leader even listed off a name of bogeymen of the so-called elite as he rallied his troops. Let's have a listen. The dodgy landlords like the Duke of Westminster, Britain's youngest billionaire who tried to evict whole blocks of flats where families live to make way for luxury apartments... Or the millions of tenants in Britain who struggle to pay their rent each month. The the bad bosses like Mike Ashley, the billionaire who won't pay his staff properly and is even running Newcastle United into the ground. Or his exploited workforce like the woman who was reportedly forced to give birth in a warehouse toilet because she was terrified of missing her shift. Whose side are you on? Paul, you're just back from the launch. What did you make of it? Well, a lot of us arrived at that launch thinking, well... There was no coffee. Uh, There was no coffee. (laughs) Not for journalists, anyway. Um, And we kept thinking, oh, we've seen this all before. You know, this is just Groundhog Day. We know what's coming. But what was quite striking was just how Corbyn's been through that process, of course. He's done it a million times and he's back on the road. And he seemed even more energised this time around to me. Uh, It didn't seem like he was remotely um, uh, off his game or remotely sort of not up for it. He very much was up for it. And it was as if he, he, the last two years had not happened at all, as if he was still on the campaign from two years ago, that high, that adrenaline rush of being out there. And he obviously loves it. And uh, I talked to a comedian, John Maloney, who's a Corbynista uh, afterwards, and, uh, and and I said, what do you make of it? You know, how, how difficult is it to get up there as a performer and do exactly the same routine and, and, and get the motivation for it? He said, it's easy when you believe in it. And he clearly believes in it. And that's really fascinating. It's a, it's a great insight into what drives Corbyn. Now, you may or may not say that that's what drives Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson actually loves the performance. Not sure you could say totally the man who wrote two different articles about Brexit. Is he a true believer in Brexit? Um, he actually, you might say, he prefers the roar of the crowd itself. But Corbyn definitely believes this stuff. And uh, we, we saw a lot of the call and response stuff that, that he and Johnson do with the crowd. That's all part of the of, the, of every launch. But I, th- I was really struck by how passionate he was about it. And the key thing was Labour early on, even before this campaign has properly started, 
think they've found this touchstone issue of selling off the NHS to Trump and private interests. And it's going it, already like wildfire on social media. It's as if that magic moment for Labour um, in the last election with the dementia tax and also with the whole idea of, we've talked about this before, about, um, you know, uh, fox hunting. Some of those under-the-radar issues suddenly burst into life. They've burst into life already. Now, they've had the advantage of this Dispatches Channel 4 programme. Um, and what really struck me this week in PMQs was the way the Prime Minister failed to engage with that basic question. Was was there anything in this? He just tried to bat it aside. And a lot of Tories think he's got to do a lot better than that. Otherwise, this could really run away as a campaign issue. Now, personally, I'm not sure how much evidence there is beyond that meeting with a few officials. But as we know, evidence isn't what drives elections. <laughs> yeah, so, so far, all the Tories are doing is... I saw Matt, uh, Matt Hancock tweet this morning just saying, we are the party of the NHS and everyone knows that, which is just not really it's good It's not going to work. I think they're going to have to come up with some better answer, don't you, Robert? I do. I think the response will be in terms of the spending commitments that they've made previously, and it'll become as a more considered response. The thing about it for the Labour Party, despite that, is that the NHS has been their theme for a, for a long period of time. Uh, and therefore, each election you go into, um, the Tories have faced that burden and they ought to be in a position. It may be phrased somewhat differently this time, but uh, the reality is that they ought to be in a position to respond to it uh, in a way that um, they probably haven't successfully previously. Uh, Rachel, we've heard a bit about Corbyn's strengths. What are Labour's weaknesses going into this campaign? Yeah, I would also just say on the NHS yeah. issue that um, it very much has number 10 rattled um, one of them. Um, the PM's official spokesman was kind of doing the rounds in the lobby today, sort of throwing around threats that they might complain to Ipsa about the Daily Mirror's front page of plot to oh, wow. plot to sell off the NHS. I said, are you really going to do that? And he was, um, no. <laughs> but <laughs> but it, it very much does have them, does have them rattled. Um, in terms of weaknesses, I think they'll very much go after, um, the Conservatives will very much go after Corbyn's leadership. Um, is, he a, is he a strong leader? Is he going to just not lead on the issue of Brexit and kind of let it drag on and on and let other people decide? Um, law and order is, is, is another weak point for the Labour Party and previously Corbyn's um, sort of been really reluctant to back the shoot to kill policy and I think probably that's a bad issue for them. Um, also defence is kind of not, not great for them. He's campaigned for um, the scrapping of nuclear weapons in the past um, and I wonder if a lot of people will be able to save the Labour Party campaign that it's quite divisive this which side are you on? I wonder how well that'll play in marginal seats where people are just looking for. That's a good point. A good which side are you on? If you're a floating voter, yeah, all right, you're being asked for a forced choice, and that's what Corbyn's trying to do. And to, particularly to those Labour remainers, it's a forced choice for them. Whose side are you really on? Are you on Boris Johnson Brexit, or you're on a referendum? Make your mind up. Time. It's he's trying. He's trying to funnel people um, through that, uh, and. The problem is with floating voters who don't take much interest in politics. Whose side are you on? I'm on my side, is what they might say. Actually, I'm out for me, thank you very much. Um, and and I'm not quite sure how Corbyn captures them. Is, is it quite smart, though, because it's, it's basically trying to frame battles as it's Labour or Tories, so yeah, yeah. you get the progressive as, as we see, I mean, we'll come on to Lib Dems, Dems later. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but also it's, you know... The impact of the Brexit party, I think, is is the other issue there. Um, Labour is quite rightly, as Robert and, and Rachel have said, you know, they're terrified about 
um, just how many of their seats are going to have candidates in. And we can talk about that, actually. Yeah, we will talk about that in yeah, a bit. But, yeah. um, do you think anti-Semitism is going to be a problem for Labour? I think this, the issue about anti-Semitism is that it encapsulates a message that the Tories tried and failed to get across at the last election. The Tories perceived in 2017 as Corbyn liability week. He behaved much better in terms of, of, of dress, style, presentation in 2017. Not the many, for the many, not the Jew, summarises the message which the IRA didn't. Using the IRA in 2017 was referring to something that had happened for many people before they were born. And it didn't therefore resonate. What has happened recently for the Labour Party with the resignations of Luciana Berger and Louise Ellerman and all these sorts of people uh, has got a message, reinvigorated a message that was there but didn't cut in 2017. And the associated extremism um, is quite clearly still there in all the polls and all the messaging um, that I'm seeing. And therefore, um, I think, curiously enough, uh, it'll be difficult for him to cope with those sorts of assaults and because, is that, because it strikes a chord with people. They believe it in a way they didn't previously. Is that because it's, as you say, extremism? They might not know the detail of what the anti-Semitism row is, but it's just that he's hanging around with extremists and he's not doing anything about it. Is that basically it, Robert? Absolutely. And if I cite one other word, which people begin to say, ah, oh, yes, and you looking at me, you can't think what the word is. Well, it's Salisbury. And, you know, all the Tories have to do is start playing back things to do with Salisbury. And you tie that in with one or two other things. Uh, and it, 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 ha- it, it has modernised the message the Tories tried and failed to get across in 2017. Yeah, because one of the big questions this selection is, have, did we reach peak Corbyn in 2017? But it may well be... Did, the question should be, did we reach peak Corbyn attack lines in 2017? And we didn't. And all those IRA lines, they wore off as a duck's back. Um, he, he focused on during the terror attack in Manchester. Everyone thought it was at his weakest point. He went yeah. on cuts. And <coughs> if he can somehow pivot to that, Corbyn might and pivot the debate to public services. He might be OK. But if the Tories do do their sort of scripals, the Russias, the Syrias, and wrap in everything else and tie it with anti-Semitism as this guy's really just slightly not on the same spectrum yeah, as he's, you, he's not, that might work. Not, he's not mainstream, not centre ground. That's what they can say. There's an interesting thing. The opinion polls, some of the pollsters have adjusted for something that's called false recall. The last election result was 42% Conservative and 40% Labour. And what at least two of the pollsters have done is said, actually, people are not recalling that they voted Labour. It's the question of Pete Corbyn. And therefore, you will look at one or two of the pollsters, YouGov is one, where they've got very large Tory leads because they believe they've identified that people who actually did vote Labour and disregarded Corbyn's liabilities in in 2017, have suddenly rediscovered them. Now, that's not the sole reason why Labour are down, but it's quite clearly when a pollster says we've got false recall persistently, um, then there is something about the messaging and people are denying that they voted Labour (laughs) when they clearly did in 2017. That's really interesting. So it's like the opposite of shy Tories. Yes, yes. That's really interesting. The other other problem for the Labour Party is have their deserted Remainers in Remainers' eyes. You know, I think 
they, they, in 2017, arguably, the Remain vote didn't really have somewhere to go, whereas now they, they have the Lib Dems. Which is to why go. I was referring to the university constituencies, yeah. which are, we, all the polling, again, shows that Remain voters are more mobile than Leave voters. Uh, and therefore, where you've got a concentration of public sector employees, highly educated people, uh, higher proportions often of women voters and university students and uh, their professors and the, the uh, employers associated with it, they are the seats where the Lib Dems are really going to target because they are they are real Lib Dem friendly constituencies. And that's what I think is going to be really interesting for Corbyn and for Joe Swinson in those Labour Tory marginals. Who wins the argument for, for those Labour Remain votes? Because Corbyn can have a very powerful case. Look, there's only going to be two possible prime ministers, me or Boris Johnson. There's only one of us offering a referendum. If you really want a referendum, you have to vote Labour because I'm the only guy who can deliver it. If you vote Lib Dem, you may end up with a Tory who will never deliver a referendum. And the question is, well, that might determine the entire outcome of this election, in my opinion, in those marginal Labour Tory seats. Well, as we've discussed, this election is the first genuine four-way fight in years with the Lib Dems and the Brexit Party both polling well into double figures. Meanwhile, in Scotland, the SNP-Tory battle could prove decisive. Lib Dem leader Jo Swinson even thinks she can be PM. Let's have a listen. There are no limits to my ambitions for the Liberal Democrats and indeed for our country because we can be better than this, than what we have, this choice between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. Millions of people are crying out for a positive, liberal alternative to build an open, inclusive and fair society. And as Liberal Democrat leader, I am standing in this election as candidate to be Prime Minister and build a brighter future for our country. The first thing we will do is stop Brexit and then we will move on to tackle the challenges that we face. Paul, what's Joe Swinton up to? Well, it's quite interesting. Um, I did a piece last night about the fact that, like, along with a lot of people, um, the first they saw of this general election was a leaflet, glossy leaflet, eight-page leaflet from the Lib Dems with Joe Swinson's face all over it, Britain's next Prime Minister, and a nice glossy magazine-type photo of her looking quite cool and casual and normal. Um, and then lots of pictures of her throughout this leaf, and it's all about Joe Swinson, Joe Swinson, Joe Swinson. Um, quite a contrast, I suspect, to the other parties. I suspect there won't be a lot of necessarily Boris Johnson over all Tory leaflets, and certainly won't be Jeremy Corbyn over a lot of Labour leaflets. Um, so they are doing uh, their best to make it sound as though they can win in unwinnable seats. And then places in there in third place... They're hoping to rather remarkably say they can be in first place. It's rather a, a, a neat inversion of the Lib Dem usual tactic, which is winning here. And they do these bar charts that we've all seen. And the third party is really reduced. Well, actually, they're suddenly bumping up. They're saying, ignore that. We, <laughs> we, we were way behind um, in 2017 and 2015. We were the third place, but now we can win it. Um, that might be a big ask, to be honest. But it is interesting uh, whether or not the TV debates will give Swinson the oxygen publicity that she really desperately wants. Um, Corbyn and Johnson have we here are in basically in no mood to have a three-way main debate. They want head-to-head. I can see from both their interests why them and the broadcasters would love that. Um, there might be some issues about broadcasting rules about whether or not you should really have the third party in there, uh, as well as Nicola Sturgeon. And I, I think 
I don't know. The, one of the Lib Dems called it to me. He said to me yesterday that this is the bicep kissing strategy. It, it makes you make yourself look big and look tough, and and because then only then can you convince the voters that actually you're going to win. Now it sounds really cringy, um, but they're convinced that this is the way to do it. If you don't talk about winning, you're never going to win. And they say, yeah, it's so outlandish to think you can come from third to first. But the only way you can persuade those voters to say, well, we're going to we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. It's quite an, ish, quite an image, isn't it, Joe, it is. Joe Swinson? We need to photos, Photoshop it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very similar to the campaign in Scotland that worked well for Ruth Davidson, just making it about, you know, about the leader entirely. Um, and I think that w- it works well for them against the Labour Party as well, doesn't it? If you've got a leader that you're proud of and you can say this, this person we want but to is, be Prime Minister. Is Joe Swinson that it's, leader, though? Well, it's interesting. Well, I think Sorry. a lot of Labour voters like her. It's interesting if you look at the uh, reversing back to the question of the polls, and I'm very sad because I spend far too much time reading them. Um, and that is that actually it's been surprised to me how negative Joe Swinson's ratings are. The initially you could argue, well, there's lots of don't knows because people didn't know her, and there still is a disproportionate a number of people who are responding saying don't know. But it's interesting the latest poll I saw was two to one against her on a negative basis. And that we're now markedly reducing the don't knows. So she isn't, apparently, she is not cutting through in the way that the Lib Dems would like her to. Having said that, we are going into the most negative election. All elections are negative, but I believe this is going to be unbelievably negative. But there is a real question of credibility for the Lib Dems in terms of their numbers. Um, you, I, I said to somebody yesterday that anybody who projected that the Lib Dems were going to get 200 plus seats was an expert in maths, mathematical extrapolation, uh, probably a first degree honours in that, but was a fail in common sense in terms of electoral mathematics. They, they will gain seats. It's going to be good for them. No question about it. But... The more seats they say they're going to gain, the less credible their argument about uh, not supporting either the Tories or Labour in a parliament, because that pres- their figures presume a hung parliament. And they can't say we're not going to support Labour or the Conservatives, because they will have to answer the question. If you've got 50, if you've got 100, if you've got 150 seats, that makes the mass of the House of Commons impossible for a majority. So you have to answer the question, where are you going to stand when it comes to the negotiation? Just to flip back to the Tories quickly, if it's a hung parliament, what do you make of this idea that basically Boris Johnson has to win a majority or he's out of number 10 because he's got no one to take his Brexit deal through with him? Um, He's abandoned the DUP and so on. The the thing about Boris and uh, about the Tories at the moment is that they... They're defying every form of electoral and uh, um, ministerial logic, rather like Trump did in the States. Every time he did something in an election campaign, the automatic response of the people who know, like the four of us around, oh, well, that will damage him. It didn't. And he finished up winning the states of Pennsylvania and Michigan and 
and uh, Wisconsin uh, by, by small margins. And so, no, I'm, I'm not convinced it'll be the end of him because of all sorts of other factors. Let's, let's worry about where we get to on December the 13th yeah. first. Absolutely. But no, for the Lib Dems, I think they've got a huge burden of credibility about the figures and also, the impl- and more importantly, the credibility of their, what their response is to those figures because you cannot have... Uh, because people say, just it's as ever before. And it's the last big shot, this, let's be honest, because it's the last time Brexit may may not be delivered. If Brexit does happen, then the ship has sailed big time. It might be the last time they're facing Jeremy Corbyn. Um, you know, the, the pressure's on, I think, for Joe Swinson. That's why there's a sense of almost desperation. Sorry, can I just tell one very quick story? And that is, I was in Watford on Tuesday. The Labour Party have already produced a bar chart, Conservatives and Labour neck and neck, with Lib Dems not winning here. Ah, And that'll be the Labour Party response where they're in third place, not winning here. Interesting. And uh, just, Rachel, just very quickly, a quick word on how the SNP could actually decide the outcome of this election for Boris Um, Johnson. Well, if it's a hung parliament, there'll be there'll be the question of the second independence referendum on the table straight away, which um, is will be used by both sides of the argument in Scotland. Um, the Conservatives under Ruth Davidson, the Scottish Conservatives under Ruth Davidson, won quite a few seats up there, which they are considered to be very much at, at risk now, either from the SNP or from. Um, the, the Lib Dems because Jo Swinson's a Scottish MP she knows knows that part of the country really well um, and there's, there's all Labour won back some seats up there but the SNP are doing so well in their polls it'll be I'd be surprised if they didn't win some of the seats they, they gained back yeah, yeah they will yeah. they'll win quite a few back and and let's talk about the Brexit party because yeah. that's the kind of big issue at the moment and, and what they decide to do where they decide to stand candidates could well decide this election couldn't it Paul? It could um, I'd be interested to hear what Robert thinks on this because he's an expert on on the mapping of this kind of structure and and what we all assume is that in Wales I talked to a lot of people in number 10 who are so convinced they can make up the losses in Scotland to the SNP with gains in Wales why? Because they think a lot of those working class Labour voters they're never going to vote Tory in a million years in Wales. It's even worse than it is in Scotland, the resentment of the Tories in, in some senses, uh, with all those pit, former pit villages, etc. Um, and But they are voting and have voted for the Brexit Party. They, you know, the gateway drug to not voting Labour is Brexit Party. Uh, now, it's not been a gateway to the Tories. So they're sticking, just saying, I could never vote Tory, but yeah, I'll vote for the Brexit Party. And that, the Tories definitely think they could pick up you know, I've heard figures of more than twenty seats in in Wales. That they're, I mean, some of them, are, some of the wildest estimates are. Um, no, they might, they might be. <laughs> Rob's laughing. Rob's laughing. They might be bonkers, but it will be interesting to see whether in Wales and in the northeast and some pockets of of England, whether or not that Brexit Party impact really will will help the Tories by by just ruining Labour's vote. Yeah, Robert, what, what do you, the Brexit Party, let's explain, are debating now whether to stand against the Tories, basically, or, or whether to just focus on Labour seats. Let's, Where let's, do you see the... Let's deal this? with two, two yeah. different sides. The credibility. First of all, this question of the Brexit Party. Boris Johnson has drained, pulled back, as a large number of the Tory defectors to the Brexit stroke UKIP parties. There's no question. Um, He may have alienated Remainers, but he's pulled back the Brexit-inclined Tories. In the polls, the Brexit party is persistently at about 10 to 14%. A very large number of those people are 
dyed-in-the-wool Labour voters who, as you put it, Paul, willing to vote for the Brexit party in Wales, in the North Midlands, in the North, in the North East. Uh, but they won't vote, to, if I can use a well-known phrase or saying, they'll die in a ditch before they <laughs> vote Tory. Um, so actually the absence of Brexit candidates in constituencies like Warrington South, in Wakefield, in Wrexham, will actually be disadvantageous to the Tory party because those people won't cross to the Tories just because there's no Brexit party. They'll either go out and vote Labour or they'll stay at home, and I think both. But can I just come to the credibility of the sort of idea that Labour, that Labour are going to lose 20 seats to the Tories in Wales? There are only 40 seats in the whole of <laughs> Wales. Total. Now, the Tories already hold a few. Yeah. So do Plaid. The Lib Dems have Brecon and Rat. You go through and you start to get... And do we honestly think that we're going to sit on the morning of December the 15th, 13th, sorry, and hear Tory gain Merthyr Tidfish? <laughs> um, you know, there's a slight credibility gap there somewhere. And that's what would actually have to happen for the Tories to pick up those seats. And the same in Sunderland and Newcastle. Yes, the Tories may well pick up Bishop Auckland and, and another seat in Stockton. But the problem for the Tories is that Brexit does not solve the problem that it's ones and twos in those places, whereas it could easily be double figures in Scotland, let alone the southeast or wherever. How much of that Brexit party vote uh, are men? Oh, I brought, if you take that, if, if you drew up the stereotypical um, Brexit voter, uh, ex-Labour, they're white, industrial, male, over 50s. Now, you know, do the, are they the people who are going to suddenly change their social habits of a lifetime and fill a ballot paper in with a Tory on it in troves? No. They, but, but, they will, but if they do vote Brexit, if Brexit party do stand... That could really have an impact. That's the key point. If they, in a place like Warrington um, and in Bishop Auckland and, and these sorts of places, Colne Valley, and, which are marginal ready, yeah. Labour gains at the last uh, election in some of the cases, um, the fact that those working class estates move to Brexit instead of previously having voted Labour, place like Warrington South, place, place like Wrexham, those will turn Tory just because Labour voters have moved to Brexit. But what's in it for the Brexit party? This is what I really want to know. I mean, there, there was a piece on Brexit Central this morning by their chief whip in Europe arguing why they should stand in, in Tory seats as well as Labour seats. And he was saying, first, there's a credibility problem amongst Labour voters. If, you, if we're seen as helping the Tories... That reduces our vote. We're, we're seen as Tory light. That's really going to harm us. But secondly, just as importantly, um, he was saying, "What well, we need to get something in return. We can't just be there as a vehicle to help the Tories win these marginals. And what do they get back? And that's the question. What do they get back, Robert? And I think the answer is very little. And that's why I think the idea that you stand in 20 seats, concentrate in 20 seats, but stand in the vast majority of them. Because at the end of the day, how many seats do we actually think that the Brexit party is going to win? Zero. I'm not convinced of that, but I really? think it's probably a zero. But I just, you know, we might see one or two freakish results. Where at? Um, in places along that M62 corridor. Right. Or in the northeast, somewhere in Sunderland or somewhere like that. 
Um, they've got councillors in Sunderland, for example, um, and there are one or two other places with it. But the other message is, if they want to carry weight, particularly if it's a hung parliament, say you say, well, we did very well in 20 seats and we've got one MP or we've got none or whatever. Um, as against saying, well, actually, we attracted three million votes or two million votes. Which is the stronger argument in the public domain? Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, it, it will, to some extent, it comes back, you touched on the question of um, leader debates. Uh, it's difficult for the Lib Dems to argue that they should actually have, be a leader when they've got, okay, they've got 20 seats at the moment. Um, but, um, you know... If, because you should measure it possibly on the number of votes that people get. That's a very good point. And if you point to the Euros, they've got a very good case, haven't they? Yeah. yeah. So, so, so if the Brexit party do go ahead and stand a full slate of candidates, then how do you see that affecting the Tories and Labour? I think it will there? help the Tories yeah. in the sorts of seats I was referring to. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, and also... There are all these Labour MPs, whether, and there's no question, there are Labour MPs in South Wales who are running scared to an incredible degree and in the Wiggins of, and the Barnes's of this world. And that will actually take um, party workers away. Let's, let's imagine an election in northwest England. At the moment, the Labour Party can pour their workers into Warrington South to Weaver Vale, Manchester Withington to against the, the Lib Dems, those sorts of seats. Now, if, it, if you've got MPs in Lee or in St Helens or Knowsley, um, then it, uh, and th they're saying, we're going to lose. We're going to lose to Brexit. Then suddenly it becomes a very different election. And, and therefore, I think it could have an effect um, on the marginals and if Brexit withdraw, it makes it a lot easier for Labour to pour into crew and those sorts of places. Can I ask uh, one thing? Obviously, climate change has been a huge issue over the last, last few months. What does the Green Party do to the election? Um, it, in the same way that we're talking about a pact between the Tories and, and Brexit, possibly, there is this question of the possibility of a pact between the Lib Dems and the Greens and Plaid. In, which worked very effectively in Brecon and Radnor. Um, last time, it was actually the Lib Dems took everything uh, because they got the Greens to stand aside. And, you know, and actually the Greens got in the same way that you're talking earlier on about, you know, what do you get out of it for the Brexit party? The Greens must be more skilled negotiators this time round than actually kind of getting free run in two can constituencies against, I don't know how many it was last time for the Lib, but it was dozens. Um, so I, I think the Greens could do well out of a pact. Uh, they could choose well. And again, the problem there is that they'll be wanting to fight the same university-oriented Labour-held constituencies as will the Lib Dems, which is going to make forming a pact somewhat difficult. Because after all said and done, you know, they've got the one Green MP in Brighton, university constituency, again, uh, and they will want to go for the Bristol Wests and the Norwich Souths and these sorts of places. Right, brilliant analysis, everyone, but now it's time to test your knowledge with a quiz. And this week's is oh. all about John Burko, who's standing down as common speaker after more than a decade. Right, just chime in whenever, um, you know, uh, you know the drill. We do. So Bur Burko had a pretty inauspicious start to his political career. He was part of two Tory organisations that both had very controversial policy ideas, but what were they? 
Monday yeah. Club. Yeah. And what was the policy? Oh, that was a repatriation was yes. the policy, wasn't it? Well, yes. I think. Of a version well, of a halt to Commonwealth immigration. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what the other organisation he was a member well, of. Well, there's a point up for grabs then. The young Tories. Um, Conservative was, Future, Conservative well, they Students. They were closed down by Tebbit, weren't they? Conservative Students. Yes. Tebbit closed them down. But I've no, no idea why. And their controversial policy, well, they were pro-apartheid. Uh, wow. Yeah. And uh, closed down by Tebbit for running a hang Mandela campaign. That was it. Crikey. So I think it's a point He's been on a journey. Robert and Paul. <laughs> Isn't that the phrase? Yeah. <laughs> Um, in 2007, there were rumours Burko could defect from the Tories, but to which party? Well, I'm assuming 2007, I would guess it would be Labour. Paul, you were first, it was Labour, right. correct? I do remember having a long chat with the young John Burko about which way he was going to go um, around that time. And, uh, and then that was soon after the, the 2005 Tory leadership, which was Cameron v Davis. And I remember a young John Burko asking me, Paul, which way do you think I should go, Davis or Davis or Cameron? And I couldn't believe yeah. it. He's actually asking me my advice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to make your own mind up. But um, in the end, I think he he did. He flirted with Davis and went with Cameron. But there we go. Right there you go. Well, he, he didn't defect to Labour in the end, but he did accept an advisory post on Gordon Brown's review of support for children with special yes. needs. Yes. Final question. He was a goat in that sense. Indeed. <laughs> Final question. In July 2015, Burko got in hot water over his expenses, but what did Andy Sylvester of the Taxpayers Alliance at the time call an obscene waste of money? Oh, God. What did he get his expenses on? I don't remember, I don't remember this story. Got no idea. Oh. This is a tough one. Give us a clue. Sorry. It's not uh, wisteria. That was Cameron. It involves <laughs> uh, travel. First class Oh, travel? yes. This, this is the whole question. Of first-class travel, no, taxi. Well, there was ah, a, it's taxi, taxi fares. I was it, it's it was a kind of if I can use the phrase, it was a global problem, and it started with leaving the building in taxis, and then went ah. on. Um, and and uh, there was uh, everything had to be downgraded. Yeah, he, he, and one of his staff actually complained to me about that because he, he, he was affected as well. He made a hundred and seventy-two pound claim for a zero point seven mile taxi ride. Wow. <laughs> From the Palace of Westminster to Carlton House Terrace. Yes, uh, because, <laughs> because it included what a, a train a bill as well. At some uh, point? It was a chauffeur-driven um, and, um, I didn't know car, that. and it, so it cost. And it was waiting time. Yeah. Amazing. It was all sorts of because he insisted on on booking things, which wow. then sat there and waited for hours. Because that that was just the most extreme example of a series of them. Lazy. There you go, John Burko. Wow. <laughs> the man of the people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We all have chauffeur-driven cars from Westminster to Carlton Terrace. <laughs> I think that was a draw, by the way, Robert. And yeah, I'm happy with the draw against Robert. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me, and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday and get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. We'll just leave you with Donald Trump's assessment of the operation to kill ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. It was actually, look, nobody was even hurt. Our canine, as they call, I call it a dog, a beautiful dog, a talented dog, was injured and brought back. 